morning I'll be reading Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, through chapter 5, verse 10. Hear now the word of the Lord. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. But we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. In uh, 2012, a man in Duluth, Minnesota, uh, was convicted as guilty of his crimes in court. And after his conviction, he appealed that conviction, arguing that the legal counsel that represented him was ineffective, quote, ineffective, incompetent, and had no idea what he was doing. He was angry at his lawyer. You know, when we need someone to represent us and stand for us, we want to make sure that person knows what they're doing that they're a good representative, that they will represent us well and know what they're doing. So who was this sham of a lawyer? The man had chosen to represent himself. Think about that. He had, in a situation where he needed faithful, good, competent representation, he chose to represent himself. And then afterwards said, I should not have been allowed to do so because I didn't know what I was doing. I wasn't competent to do the job. When we are faced with a task too great for us, we need a representative. We need someone who can do the work for us. And when we have a representative, we need to trust that they are competent, that they're able to do what we need them to do in our place. And that's what the author of Hebrews is saying about Jesus in these verses, that he takes on a job we, we could not do for ourselves. He represents us and he is able. He is the perfect representative. He starts out in chapter 4, verse 14, saying, we have a great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God. To a Jewish reader, the, like the original audience of the letter to the Hebrews, that would have been a very exciting claim, a bold statement that Jesus is our great high priest. For 21st century Americans, it probably doesn't capture us in quite the same way. 
So I want to take a, before we get into looking at the passage in depth, I want to take a couple minutes to, to help you explain why this idea of having a high priest is something that matters to you. The author does something very helpful in chapter 5, verse 1. He gives the job description of a priest. Every priest chosen from among men is appointed to do this, to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. And then what follows is a showing that Jesus meets the criteria of a priest, appointed by God, represents the people, makes sacrifice. In short, a priest's job was to bring the people back to God. The priest's job was to bring the people back into the presence of God. It matters because it meets a need that you might not know you have, but a need that expresses itself in a longing that I'm sure you feel very deeply. Let me say that again. That was a long sentence. This matters because it meets a need you might not know you have, but a need that expresses itself in a longing that I'm sure you feel very deeply. The need is to have someone represent you before God. In Exodus 33, the Lord said to Moses, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. God is holy beyond our understanding, and His very nature reacts to sin with wrath. God destroys sin whenever it comes into His presence. And you and me, having sinned, we would be destroyed in the presence of God. That's why Adam and Eve were rejected, ejected from the garden. Having sinned, they risked being destroyed by the judging wrath of God's righteousness. And so God removed them from His presence in the Garden of Eden in order to protect them until the time when salvation was ready. So you need someone to go meet God in your place. You need a representative. But that need that you may not realize you have expresses itself in a longing, a desire in your heart that I think each of you feels very deeply. And that is the desire to be accepted, the desire to belong, that feeling of, of being on the outside and looking in, of wanting to be one of the cool kids, to be a part of the in crowd. And, and, and so much of our, our effort, our life is spent trying to buy our way in, knocking on the door, C.S. Lewis says, the door that we've been knocking on all our lives, trying to get in. And we try to buy our way in by, by wearing the right style, by having the right body type, by saying the right words, telling the right jokes, buying the right car. We just want to belong. We just want people's faces to light up when they see us and to feel like we're welcome and we're a part of something and that we have a home. And all of that is the working out of the feeling in our hearts of alienation. That feeling of being on the outside and wanting to be let in, it goes back to the garden where our sin cuts us off from God. And everywhere we turn, we're trying to find our way back in to regain that feeling of home, of belonging, of welcome. The priesthood in the Old Testament, it didn't accomplish that, but it pointed to it. God gave the priesthood to point to a living picture of how we are excluded and how God, through sacrifice, 
and representatives will bring us back in. And we who are alienated will be welcome home. Jesus is the reality that all of the priesthood was pointing to. He is the perfect representative who brings us back to God. And because He is that perfect high priest representative who brings us back into the presence of God, we trust Him in every way. The first way we see that is because He serves, we are confident. Because He serves as our high priest, we are confident. Sometimes... We're not very confident in our representatives, right? Without getting at all political, I know we can all agree that there are times when the people that we elect as our representatives don't seem to be the right person for the job. And so if Jesus is to be our high priest and to represent us, it's fair to ask, is he the right person for the job? Can we be confident that he will be received, that he is approved to represent us? and that he will represent us well. And the author insists that because Jesus serves, because Jesus serves, we can be confident. First of all, he points out that not just anyone can do the job. In chapter 5, verse 4, he says, No one takes this honor of being a priest for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was called by God to be the high priest. You know, I may decide, and my wife, we established during the first service, my wife would agree with me on this, I may decide that I want to be the U.S. ambassador to Fiji. Can I just decide that and pack up my suitcases and fly out there and walk into the embassy and say, I'm here for my new job? No, that is not yours for the taking. In fact, the same is probably true of just about any job. You can't just show up and say, I'm here to do this. You have to be appointed. You have to be assigned. You have to be given that role. So the question is, how did Jesus get the job of high priest? What makes him that high priest for us? And the answer the author gives is he quotes two different psalms that he's already quoted earlier in Hebrews, Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. So look at verses 5 and 6 of chapter 5. Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You're my son, today I've begotten you. And as he also says in another place, you're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, instead of spending the rest of the morning analyzing the, the theological depths of those two verses, which is tremendous, uh, I just want to summarize here that first one. You are my son, today I have begotten you. It's from Psalm 2, which is about the Messiah being the king of God's people and God declaring to the Messiah a father-son relationship. And then that next verse about Melchizedek Hang tight, because in January you'll hear all you ever wanted to hear about Melchizedek when we get to chapter 7 of Hebrews. But for now, the Cliff Notes version is that Melchizedek in the Old Testament was a priest who was at the same time also a king, which was very rare and could not happen in Israel. And, and the point of all this is that Jesus is our appointed representative, our high priest, who is the Son of God and King. There is no doubt that he is given access to God. God will receive him. And why that matters for you is because Jesus goes before God, not just as son, not just as king or all the other things he is, but also as a priest. And what that means is he doesn't go alone. The, uh, the temple in the Old Testament, 
We, there's reason that we're given the architectural specifications of it and the details of the design of it because the temple and the tabernacle were designed in a very specific way. And, and if we had hours to look at this, we could look at, at how the temple was actually designed to be like the universe with an outer court and then an inner court. And then finally, the Holy of Holies, the center place behind the curtain where the ark was, where God met with his people, his presence was, was meant to be the garden. The garden of Eden where God's presence was and, and Adam and Eve had been cast out. And now the only way back is with blood, with death. And so the high priest would come in once a year, having made sacrifice for his own sins. He would come in to make sacrifice for the people in the presence of God. But what's really beautiful about the picture of that is that when the priest went in, even though the priest was by himself, he was not alone. It was not only the priest entering the presence of God. It was not only the high priest being reunited with God and welcomed back into his presence. He wore the name of all the people he represented. Look at Exodus 28, verses 9 and 10 and 12. God says in instructing how to dress the high priest, how Aaron was to be dressed, he said, you shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel. Six of their names on the one stone and the names of the remaining six on the other stone in the order of their birth. And you shall set these two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod that Aaron the priest will wear as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. So each time the priest entered the presence of God, he brought the people with him. Now look at Hebrews 4.14 again. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, that image of passing through the heavens is Jesus going through the heavens and into the presence of God, just like the priest would go through the curtain into the holiest of holies. And look what happens in Hebrews 9. Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Just as the priest would go in bearing the names of the people of Israel, on his garments, Jesus enters the presence of God, bearing the names of his people. And we know that he's going to be received. We have confidence that he will not be rejected. We know that God receives him because God appointed to him, him to this office. God calls him in. And that is, there's, there's some important things to understand from that. One of them being this. There's no other way. There is no other access into the presence of God. If anybody else other than the high priest that one time every year had tried to enter the Holy of Holies, he would have been struck dead by God's wrath. There is no other way to be brought back into the presence of God except by the priest that God has appointed and receives, which for us is Jesus. In Acts chapter 4, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We, our hearts, seek that sense of welcome, that sense of belonging, that acceptance. We try to find it in family. We try to find it in marriage. We try to find it in friendships. We try to find it in political and social movements. We try to find it in a hundred thousand other ways. 
And we will not find it. Because there is no other way to be welcomed back into the presence of God except to be carried there by the priest that God has appointed and on whose shoulder he has written your name. My name is graven on his hands, Isaiah 50 says. Also, because he is appointed by God to serve in this way, we can trust, we can be confident that God will not reject him. And if God does not reject Jesus, then God does not reject the people that Jesus brings. In Romans 8, we read, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who has any right to keep you out of the presence of God? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is now at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. We have a priest who has taken us from being cast out and alienated and has brought us into the presence of God. That, brothers and sisters, gives us confidence. It removes the sense of being alone. And as we sang earlier, all now mysterious shall be bright at last. Be still, your confidence can be sure. Let us therefore, as verse 16 says, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Because he serves, we can be confident. We also see that because he sacrificed, we hold fast. The priest has to be appointed by God, but what does he do that makes a difference? Verse Chapter 5, verse 1, every priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God by doing what? To offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. If we are going to be welcomed back into the presence of God, our sin has to be punished, which means one of two things, either we die for our sin, or God accepts a sacrifice in our place. The priest brings the sacrifice. And because Jesus was sacrificed, we hold fast. Now, all the centuries of animal sacrifice in the Old Testament were never intended to remove sin. All they could do was point to and predict and, and prepare people for the real, true sacrifice in Jesus Christ. So when Jesus, the priest, enters heaven, he has to bring a sacrifice that is sufficient to take care of our sin, the source of our problem. That's why in Chapter 5, verse 9 says, Being made perfect, Jesus became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. His sacrifice had to eternally take care of our sin problem. And to be very clear on how that happens, in Hebrews 9, it says, He appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. This is what the author means in 4.14 when he says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Let us hold fast our confession because Jesus sacrificed. We hold fast, but what is it we hold fast to? Our confession. But what is our confession? Our confession is what it is we believe, what it is we've placed our faith in. Our confession is what we believe to be true about God and our salvation. It's the message of the gospel that saves us. That's our confession. Hold fast to your conviction, your belief about the gospel. The idea of holding fast is, as the, in the words of Journey, don't stop believing. 
Don't stop believing. But I want to caution you because when I say that, it's easy for that to, to break down and go off the rails a little bit because we can falsely think that the emphasis is on the fact that we believe and the strength of our belief. How secure you are depends on how strongly you believe. And that's not at all what it means to hold fast to your confession. I've given this illustration probably a dozen times before from this pulpit. I'll give it a hundred times more because every time it, it, someone tells me it has helped them understand the gospel a little bit better. And though I speak to Florida people, I trust you understand how ice works and what a frozen pond would be like. And if you were to try to go out on a frozen pond that is frozen all the way over and you don't know how thick that ice is, you don't know if it's going to hold you up. And so you step and you listen for the cracking and you take another step. And you keep going step by step, not even sure if it's going to hold you up, but eventually you get to the other side. Was it the strength of your conviction that kept your feet from getting cold and wet? It was the strength of the ice that held you. You could have walked boldly in full faith onto that pond that had a millimeter of ice and crashed right through and gotten soggy, wet, cold, and miserable, regardless of how strongly you believed. It is not the strength of your belief that matters. It is the strength of what you believe that matters. Don't hold fast to the strength of your belief. Don't put your hope in your faith. Hold fast to what it is that you believe, that Jesus is the sacrifice that makes perfect forever his people. The apostles prayed as much in Luke 17, asking Jesus, increase our faith. We don't believe strongly enough to do what you're asking us to do. Increase our faith. Make our faith more so that we have more faith. And Jesus said that's the wrong thing to ask because it's not the volume of faith. It's the object of faith. If you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and plant in the sea, and it would obey you. It's not the volume, the amount, the strength of your faith, but the object of it. Hold fast to your confession. Our confession is that Jesus made a perfect sacrifice of himself so that we are therefore accepted by God. The debt has been paid. The victory has been won. The enemy has been defeated. The entrance has been opened wide. The condemnation against you has been overturned because Jesus sacrificed himself in your place. Hold fast to that. The original audience needed to hear that because their grip on that was weakening. They were letting go of that, thinking either Jesus wasn't enough or wasn't good enough, or wasn't what they really needed. And they were letting go of that to lay hold of something else. And every day we are in danger of doing the same thing, of letting go of our conviction that what Jesus has done is enough. And that what Jesus has done is the only way I will find that thing my heart has always been looking for, that home, that place of welcome, that sense of belonging, that sense of being good enough. I'm letting go of that and trying to grab onto something else to give me that sense of belonging, that sense of being where everybody knows your name and they're always glad you came. 
There's no adding to our confession. There is no way around it. There is nothing that can replace it. Hold fast to that which you confess, which is that Jesus Christ has died and rose again for your sin and salvation. When you hold fast to that, people lose power over you. There is no praise they can offer you. There is no criticism they can throw at you that will undo what God has given you. When you hold fast to that confession, possessions lose their power over you. Because there is nothing they can do to charm you. Nothing they can offer you. Nothing they can add to or replace what Christ has done in his sacrifice. Hold fast to that. But there was one more very important quality about a priest that we need to look at in this passage. Chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, reminder says, Every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. The priest was chosen from among the people. An angel could not be a priest priest has to be one of us, a human, a person. And moreover, because he is one of us, he understands our struggles. He gets us. He sympathizes with us. He can deal gently with the ignorant. Those are the ones that don't know any better. But also deal gently with the wayward, the ones that know better, but have chosen poorly and made bad choices. The priest can understand because he too is weak. He too knows what it is like to struggle, to suffer. And the author of Hebrews goes on to show us that Jesus can understand us because he endured the same struggles. And knowing that he went through our experience, that he walked more than a mile in our shoes, makes us ready to turn to Jesus in times of need. So because he suffered, we draw near. Because he suffered, we draw near. Look at how it describes Jesus' human experience in chapter 5, verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. It describes Jesus agonizing in prayer under difficult circumstances, just like the audience of Hebrews was going through. Suffering, persecuted, crying out to God, wanting to be heard. Jesus understands what that's like. And then in 5 verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. It seems like he probably has in view that, that painful prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night that Jesus was to be arrested before he was crucified. And as he's praying for any way out, Father, if there's any way, take this cup away from my lips. If there's any way to do this without me having to endure what I'm about to endure, that's what I want to have happen, God. He faced the painful death and, that his calling had for him. And yet he concluded in Luke 22, Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. In this way, Jesus learned obedience. He experienced, he tasted it, knew what it was like to follow the will of his heavenly Father, even when that meant pain. And that's not being brought up to just impress you or talk about how great Jesus is. 
The point for the author of Hebrews and for us this morning is that because Jesus understands what we feel, because he suffered, we should be eager to approach him, knowing that we find someone who understands us and is able to help us. Uh, Many of you know I was a music major. You have two pastors that were music majors. One of them was a music major who has a very good ear and a good voice. The other one's me. Okay, I went in as a music major. Most of you don't know this. You know what I majored in? Hitting things. That was my major in college. I, I learned percussion. I had a horrible voice. I had no ear, very poor ear for music. The man who was assigned to teach me music theory and to teach me singing had what's called perfect pitch. You play a note on that piano, he can tell you exactly what note you played. You put a piece of music before him, he can sing it exactly as it's written, hitting the notes just right. I can't do that. Never could. Way better now than I was. But you should have seen me back then. And this man was not the right man to teach me because he didn't understand. He would hand me music and be like, Rob, start out, you know, sing that piece for us. And I'd say, uh, no, it's the wrong, it's up here, start up here. I don't know where it is, play it on the piano. No, Rob, you just have to hear it. Well, I don't hear it. Well, then I don't know what to do. He, do you think I went to him during office hours <laughs> to get help? Do you think I went to him to say, hey, can you, can you show me, like, help me learn some techniques for doing this? No, because he had no idea what it was like to be me. He had no idea what it was like to see a note on the page and not know what it was going to sound like. He had no idea what it was like to hear a note and not know what it was. He had no capacity to help me because he didn't understand me. Chapter 4, verse 15. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He has undergone testing, temptation, trial, suffering, struggle, pain. He understands hunger, lust, betrayal, bitterness, frustration, fear, and though he was tempted, yet he did not sin. And so the passage goes on, because he suffered, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. When our priest carries us through the curtain and into the presence of God, having made perfect sacrifice for our sins, he offers up prayers on our behalf, prayers that he understands because he knows us. And what that means for us is this, when you are tempted, Where do you turn? When you are anxious and fearful, where do you turn? When you are doubting, where do you turn? When you are feeling guilty and like a failure, where do you turn? Do those things drive you away from God in shame and in fear, looking for some other way to deal with your anxiety and your guilt and your doubt and your fear? It should not. That's the message here. We shouldn't run from God because we're embarrassed of what we've become. We should be driven to God 
Because Jesus understands what we're going through and what we're experiencing. And when we go there, we should expect to receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. That's the heart, brothers and sisters of God. That's the heart of what the Lord's Supper teaches us. The Lord's Supper is not just a memorial. It's not just a remembering of a sacrifice. It is that, but it's not just that. It it is. It's a reminder that if we trust His sacrifice, then He carries us back into the presence of God. No doubt, that is clearly preached in the Lord's Supper. We are no longer outsiders. We are adopted children, dearly bought at the cost of His body and His blood. But there is more. The Lord's Supper reminds us not only that our high priest serves and that he is sacrificed, but also that he suffered, that he took on a human body, that he bled human blood, that he sympathizes, he understands. And so the Lord's Supper is also intended to be a means of grace. A way whereby God's grace comes and meets you as you draw near. Reminding you, teaching you, showing you of what your Savior has endured and giving you the confidence to draw near to Him because He understands. That's why we talk about in this church living out the gospel together. You'll hear us say again and again that the gospel is not just the doctrine of God for salvation. The gospel is not just the example of God for salvation. The gospel is not just the inspiration of God for salvation, but the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And so as we have the gospel displayed before us, and as we commit to take part in it and be united to this great high priest and let him bear our names, that fuels our salvation and our new obedience. Because your high priest who brings you into the very presence of God, making perfect sacrifice, understands your every struggle. That empowers you to struggle in faith. That empowers you to persevere. That empowers you to draw near to Him, to cling to Him, to hold fast to that confession because He is serving you faithfully in the presence of God. Let us prepare our hearts to receive the sign and the seal of that covenant this this day. Heavenly Father, we thank You that, that the need that we have, You have fully, fully met in Jesus Christ. That we needed one who would represent us perfectly. One who would go before us, bearing our names into Your presence, making perfect sacrifice, and able to understand us that we may cling to Him and draw near to the throne of grace and receive mercy. You have provided that for us in Jesus Christ. We are thankful. It's His name that we pray. Amen. Our children about to come here? They're coming. We're going to pause just a moment until all the sheep are in here. We want our young... Oh, they're not coming like... Okay, they're... I'll pause when the kids get here. (laughs) And join us. Um, You know, I started out by reminding you that we need someone to do something we can't do for ourselves. And that's, that's what you see here. That God requires 
righteousness, a perfect life, holiness. And we could not do that. But we have a perfect representative who took on flesh, was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin, living the perfect life we could not live in our place. God also requires that sin be answered with death. Without blood, there is no forgiveness. And so he who took on flesh to understand us and sympathize with us also bled and died in our place. That is the message of the Lord's Supper. And so the call to you is to trust in that, to declare your trust in that. And so do not take the bread, do not take the cup this morning if you are not trusting that. If Jesus is not the high priest that you are counting on to take you into the presence of God, if you are looking to, clinging to, trusting in something else to bring you that sense of peace and belonging and welcome and rightness, this is not for you. This is for those who are holding fast to their confession that Jesus is the sacrifice that makes me welcome in the sight of God. That said, there are those who will say that Jesus is their hope, but who feel no remorse over their sin, who continue in sin, not in sorrow, but in arrogance or indifference. And to those people, this is a warning. And if that is you, let this be a warning that the grace of God does not make him indifferent towards sin. Sin is met with death. And as Hebrews will go on to say later, if we go on sinning boldly, defiantly, arrogantly in the face of the grace of God, what is left except judgment? So I I bring a warning to you today. This is what God does with sin. He judges it in the death of Christ. If you are not mournful over your sin, be warned. But this is not the table of Treasure Coast Presbyterian Church. This is not the table of the PCA. This is the table of the Lord. And all who have trusted in Christ Jesus and who have been united to Him, whose names have been placed on their priest's shoulders that He may carry them into the presence of God, who have been baptized into Him, are welcome to receive from the table of the Lord. If you are doubting, if you are fearful, if you are pensive, if you are unsure, if you are weak, if you have sinned this week more times than you know, you are called to come to this table and receive grace through Jesus Christ. Because He is our High Priest, our perfect representative. So I invite you this morning, this afternoon, today, to draw near with confidence to receive mercy and find grace as our children come in and then we'll pray. Actually, I think they're going to take their time, so I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, prepare our hearts to receive by faith what you have given and to find here at this table mercy and grace as we declare the death of our high priest, our sacrifice, but also his rising to eternally live and intercede for us in your presence. Such a grace is too great for us to imagine. By your Spirit, move us to draw near to you in confidence as we hold fast. We pray this. In the name of our priest.